If you've brought your Bibles along with you this morning, whether it's, uh, it's kind of strange now. We, I go to places and, and people are asked to turn to their Bibles and they get out their cell phones. And um, it's just one of the realities of life. But whether you have an electronic or a printed version, if uh, you have that with you this morning, please find Luke chapter 10 for me. Um, now, I'll just wait until the wrestling stops here. This morning, uh, I want to take you to an isolated spot on a dangerous road in the Middle East that is known as Bloody Pass. And there should be, did we have it, Lindsay? It's there. Um, down in the lower right-hand corner, you can see the road. And in fact, if you throw up the next slide, you can probably see the road a little bit more. Bloody Pass is part of the road that goes from Jericho to Jerusalem. That road is 17 miles long. In those 17 miles, it drops 3,600 feet to basically the lowest place on earth, which is the Dead Sea. And the road, particularly, at, now you can take a bus and you can drive through there. But the road at Bible times was a narrow path, a twisting, turning path with cliffs and caves on either side with lots of places for bandits to hide. And this particular place, the Bloody Pass, got its name because of the violence that commonly occurred there. And we want to talk about a story that is set in the Bloody Pass. One poor man happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was attacked by bandits. He was left half dead and tossed to the side of the road. He was bleeding and certainly would die without help. The bandits even took his clothes. Do you recognize the story? It's one of Jesus' well, most well-known parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In fact, most of us have probably heard of it so many times that we tend to gloss over it, and we think, yeah, well, okay, uh, yeah, yeah, I've been there, heard that, done it, yep, help people in trouble and stuff, got it. But I want you to take a look with me today, another look at this parable. I want us to slow down and to shine a little bit different light on Jesus' word, a light that could possibly change our lives. Let's read the story. We're in Luke chapter 10, and the story starts in verse 25 there. Read along with me, as, uh, follow along as I read this. On one occasion, the Bible says an expert in the law. By the way, an expert, uh, uh, if you take the word apart, an ex is a has-been and a spurt is a drip under pressure. So uh, anybody that's an expert, yeah, there you go. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Okay, this was... This was about test. This was like setting Jesus up. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? So Jesus tosses it back in his court, says, okay, what do you know? So he says, and he answers with a synopsis of the law. He says, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make things okay that he practiced and believed. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now the stuff, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He pretty well had that covered. He wasn't quite so sure about the neighbor bit. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho through the bloody pass when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, a temple worker, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And when Jesus asked him this question, you know, how do you read the law? He responded with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love you as your neighbor as yourself. Um, the guy should have got it by then. But he was determined to set Jesus up. And so he asked Jesus a question that he didn't think Jesus could answer. And so he says to Jesus, okay, Jesus, so tell me who is my neighbor? Can you imagine? And maybe Jesus took a deep breath and he looked the man square in the eyes and he paused and thought for a moment and then he said these words, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The question that you and I need to consider today is who is my neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Who is it that God calls us to love just as much as we love ourselves. And beyond that, once we know, once we identify who our neighbor is, then what do we do with that? How do we show that we love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves? So Jesus answers those questions in this story. So let's review a little bit. After the man was beaten and robbed and left to die by the side of the road, along came three men. And the point of Jesus' story is how each of these responds to this poor man in his time of extreme need. The first two were professionally religious people. This is scary for me because that's me. Professionally religious people, a Jewish priest and a rabbi, a Levite, they knew God's word. They knew the scriptures. 
They held positions of authority in the church. They were leaders. And people looked up to them as leaders. And what did they do when they saw the critically injured man lying on the roadside? They passed by on the other side. And I have to ask myself the question, why? Why do we sometimes, not just professionals, but why do we sometimes pass by on the other side? Is it because they're too busy? Is it because they have too many other things on their minds? Is it because they have enough troubles of their own and they can't be bothered taking on any more? They've got a full load, they're up to here with everybody else's problems? I don't know. A number of years ago, one of my friends got one of his friends to pray a little trick on me. I won't tell you who that friend is, but he's sitting back there behind the soundboard. But he got one of his missionary buddies to phone me. Here's the story. He got one of his missionary buddies to phone me at, at quarter to 11 or something, just as we were getting ready for church. And this guy says, I, I'm at the, I'm one, of the service, one of the convenience stores in town here, and I really need help. Do you do any counseling? It's quarter to 11. I've got a service starting. So I'm bad. Well, you can't. I don't know what to do. So the guy starts laughing. He said, it's all right. I'm a friend of Brian's. And he says, I'm just messing, pulling your leg. So, oh, Lord. But, but think about this, okay? So somebody phones here, you know, and I, and I try to explain to this guy, look, I'm a pastor of a church. You know, there's a hundred some odd people that are going to be meeting here shortly, and they're, they're counting on me to be there. What do I do with this? But let's follow this scenario out sometime. Okay, so somebody phones me at 5 to 11, and I run off and, and leave you all sitting here. What would you think? Is that Okay. Cindy says yes, all right. <laughs> you know, but like, like, why do these guys pass them by? Were they just too busy? Did they not care? Did they, they you know, like, like they, had, they were up to here with other problems or maybe they had too much stress in their own lives already. Why should I bother with that? Like, I don't have time for this kind of stuff. I don't know. You see, to the Jews... Another Jew was their neighbor, and, and so they, they should have, like, like it didn't matter about non-Jews, but another Jew was their neighbor, and so they should have had compassion on this guy, but they didn't. Why didn't they have compassion or pity? Did they not care? What should you really do in those situations? And so the third man, who was not a religious professional, like the priest or the rabbi, not even Jewish, but a native of Samaria stopped by. Now the Samaritans were a group of people, the Samaritans and the Jews, they were neighbors, they kind of lived in the same country, but they didn't like each other. And what had happened, well, hundreds of years previous to this incident, was that the king of Assyria, uh, the, the country whose capital was Nineveh, had come into Israel, had deported, there had been a, a civil division in Israel, north and south, uh, this guy from Assyria had come in, taken most of the people out of the north, sent them all over the rest of the world, taken a bunch of riffraff from the rest of the world, 
imported them into Israel, and they intermingled and intermarried with the riffraff that was left and became the Samaritans. And so they kind of formed their own center of worship. They had this this place called Mount Gerizim. And if you read the story in John chapter 4 about Jesus with the, with the Samaritan woman at the well there, you know, she tried to say, say, you know, like she said, okay, you guys worship in Jerusalem. We say it's this mountain. Which one's right? And Jesus totally uh, deflected that whole thing. But they didn't like each other. They were culturally different. They were racially different. They were spiritually or religiously different. They didn't like each other. But... They kind of had to live together. They intermingled and, and, and you know, they, they sometimes they lived in the same towns and stuff like that, but they were just different and you don't mix. In fact, one time Jesus was having an argument with some Jewish leaders and uh, they, they, they were arguing with him and, and about, you know, the being the son of God and stuff like that. And they said to him, this is in John chapter 8. They said to him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you are demon-possessed? Same thing in their minds. Now, this guy stopped. Why? Because Jesus said he took pity on him. That's what the NIV says. If you look at most other Bibles, they say, compassion. And I think there's a difference. To have pity on someone is to go, ah, shucks. That's too bad. And then you move on from there. To have compassion on someone means that there is a movement within you, within your spirit, and within your will that says, you know what? I want to do something about that. I can help with that. I can do something about that. Pity says, oh, shucks, you know, that's too bad. Um, you know, um, see you. Compassion says, I want to help with that. And this guy not only felt pity on him, but he felt compassion because he also got involved. He used wine and oil as antiseptics to clean the man's wounds, and then he bandaged them. Next, he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he paid the innkeeper to care for him. To have compassion on someone is costly. And so what was the point of Jesus' message? Remember, he told this story to answer the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? So what's the answer? Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And so Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now those are both commands. Go. In other words, don't just feel pity. Go and do. In other words, do something about it. Don't just say, ah, shucks, that's too bad. I really feel sorry for that person. Jesus said, go and do. Do something. Don't just sit there. Don't just go. And that command to go and do likewise 2,000 years ago is still just as much a command today. Who is our neighbor? 
I think the parable of the Good Samaritan gives us the answer. And it's a simple answer. Do you notice that Samaritan didn't know this person? Didn't have a clue who he was. Total stranger. Wasn't someone who lived next door. Wasn't someone who lived in his family. Wasn't someone with whom he went to work every day. It wasn't someone that he knew on the street. Total stranger. Who is my neighbor? He met a stranger who had a need that he could do something about. Who is my neighbor? Our neighbor is anyone who is in need that you and I are in a position to help. You know what? Scripture has a lot to say about those who are in need. Scripture says a lot about the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the discriminated against. In fact, did you know that over 560 verses from Genesis through Revelation deal with the responsibility of God's people to the poor and the oppressed more than 560 verses? Let me give you four of them. Proverbs 14, verse 31. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 21, verse 13. If a man shuts his ear to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Isaiah 58, verse 10. If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise into darkness. 1 John 3, verse 17, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? This is talking about a brother, not just a neighbor. And so if there are more than 560 verses, there are another 556 more that basically say that God expects his people, you and me, to care for the poor and for the oppressed in our world. And the reality is that we are blessed when we do and held accountable when we don't. Think about this. If you expect God to care about you, why should God not expect you to care about others? If you expect God to care about you, which we do, we read about wonderful reality, then why should God not expect us to care about others? Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9 says that we are to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. John Stott, who is a well-known theologian, puts it this way, the perspective of Scripture is not the survival of the fittest, but the protection of the weakest. So, let's revisit that story and put it in today's terms. Imagine that instead of a man left for dead on the side of the road, there is a child. This child is one of 135 million children born into our world each year to begin their journey on the road of life. For children born in Canada, North America, other developed countries, that journey is relatively smooth and trouble-free. 
However, for one quarter of the children, one out of every four kids born each year, like the child I want you to imagine today, the road of life is like the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's like the bloody pass. It's a dangerous journey filled with the bandits of poverty, hunger, and disease. And without mercy, these bandits strike children. And when they reach the place in the road where they are most vulnerable, the bloody pass, many of these little ones are lost along the way. Each and every day, nearly 27,000 little ones, younger than five, lose their lives because no one came to their rescue as they lay dying on the side of the road. Lots of people pass by that child laying on the side of the road. Like the Jewish priest and the rabbi, many of them are religious. Like you and me, they are believers and good people, seeking to live lives that are pleasing to God. So why do we ignore the child's cries and pass by on the other side? For many of us, you can't get your heads around the figures. 27,000 each day, 135 million can't get my head about that. It's not that we don't care, but with nearly one billion people existing on less than a dollar a day, saving one child beaten up and left half dead by poverty just won't make a difference. Others think there are international agencies that can take care of that. But God's Word says that you and I are to think about the world's poor and oppressed. And when Jesus said, go and do likewise, it's clear that whenever we see someone in need and have the opportunity to do something about it, we need to do that. The Good Samaritan didn't pass by on the other side thinking there are lots of people who get mugged on this road. I won't solve the problem by helping just one person. Or I'll leave this problem to the government and other agencies. Or this guy is not from my community or not from my family or my church or even my country, therefore it's not my problem. But the Samaritan got involved. And he didn't just get involved, he went out of his way, went the extra mile, used his own resources. It cost him. It cost him his convenience. It cost him his comfort. It cost him cash. It cost him compassion. Compassion is costly. And he followed up with the man to make sure he had fully recovered. And then what does Jesus tell us? Go and do likewise. Let me read for you a story. It was 1952. The Korean War was raging, and Everett Swanson, American evangelist, was on a preaching tour of Japan and Korea. Everett shared the gospel with thousands of troops, and by the end of the tour, the young evangelist had led many to Christ. Certainly, he could have gone home satisfied that his mission for God's kingdom had been accomplished, and accomplished well. But one thing hounded Everett Swanson. It troubled him all the way back to the United States. While in the city of Seoul, Korea, he had noticed scores of children who were living on the streets who had been orphaned by the war. They huddled together to keep warm and begged for coins. The plight of these little children touched Everett's heart. But one morning before departing for home, he had an experience that did more than touch his heart because it changed his life. On an early walk in the city, Everett glanced up when a flatbed truck stopped a few blocks ahead of him. 
Sanitation workers emerged from the cab to gather up trash from the doorways and alleys and gutters along the street. They threw what appeared to be piles of rags onto the truck bed. As he came closer, Everett noticed that the workers were kicking the rag piles before picking them up. That made sense, because there were lots of rats around. One rag pile lay in a doorway not far from Everett. He reached it about the same time as one of the workers. That's when he noticed that the pile was not just a tangle of rags. A small arm extended from the pile, and Everett began to make out the shape of a child sleeping underneath it. Opening his mouth to warn the worker not to kick the pile, the word, word stuck in his throat as he caught sight of the cargo on the flatbed truck. The horror of what he was witnessing suddenly dawned on him. The workers were not there to gather trash. They were gathering the bodies of children who had died on the streets overnight. Those who had survived another night of that bitter Korean winter would be awakened by the kick of a sanitation worker checking for signs of life, only to face another day of hunger and cold and despair. Everett couldn't get this horrific image of Korea's abandoned children out of his mind. Like the rabbi and priest in Jesus' parable, he could have simply left the country and washed his hands of the whole matter. Not my children, not my country, not my problem. But he didn't. Not sure how to help those poor children, but determined to do whatever he could for those left to die in the streets of Seoul, he returned to the United States and started asking people to commit to contributing a small amount of money each month. He planned to use this money to provide for the needs of destitute Korean orphans. Everett Swanson's efforts grew steadily as more people caught the vision to follow Christ's command to go and do likewise. Now. More than 55 years later, whatever it started is a thriving organization called Compassion International. And through the years, Compassion has enabled hundreds of thousands of people to reach out to impoverished children around the world who have been left by life's roadside. There's a story of a young boy who was walking along the beach one day after a storm. You've probably heard the story. And the beach was littered with thousands of starfish. And as the boy kept walking along, he would grab starfish, and he'd fling them back into the sea. And someone came up to him and said, Son, there's way too many starfish for you to deal with. You can't possibly make a difference here. And the boy picked up another starfish, and he said, that's right. And as he threw it back into the sea, he said, but I made a difference for this one. You and I can't help every kid. But you and I can make a difference. Jesus said, go and do. Don't just go, ah, shucks, that's too bad. Go and do. Please stand with me for prayer. Father, it's easy for us to read these stories and to say, yep, heard that before, been there. I'm okay with that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to catch a vision for who is a neighbor. And then, Lord, I pray that you would 
move and empower us to go and do likewise. Do what we can to make a difference in the lives of one child. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. We're dismissed.